In less than a year, our podcast has gone from an average of 10,000 downloads a month to 50,000 downloads. What made the difference? You leaving us a five-star review. The more positive reviews, the more the algorithm picks us up, and more people are confronted by the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us press forward the crown rights of King Jesus by leaving us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. One final time, our primary text for this morning, I'll use a, a plethora of biblical texts, but our primary text will be Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The Bible says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you bless it to your people, all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. The Prince of Peace. That's where I want to focus our attention. That last title, name for Jesus Christ he is the Prince of Peace. In your notes, I've written the following. We don't merely need the peace of God. We need the God of peace. The key to overcoming anxiety is believing that the Lord is at hand. Fear doesn't demand or desire a principle, but it wants a person. It doesn't just want a principle or a formula, but a person. I've been thinking about anxiety um, by the grace of God, not really uh, in relation to my own personal life, but pastorally uh, in relation to the lives of many of you, as I've done some pastoral counseling over the course of this last year and really the previous year as well, 2022, uh, it seems as though anxiety has been a major theme. Now, the reality is that anxiety is uh, pretty much always a major theme. Uh, I think of uh, Peter's epistle that he speaks of sin, which is common to man. Anxiety would be one of those sins that is common to man. Uh, it's not novel. It's not unusual. It's not like you're going to go through the course of life and meet, you know, a million people, you know, over decades and only find one that gets anxious. And everybody else is like, anxiety, what's that? I've never experienced it in my life. Uh, again, the point is anxiety is exceedingly common. But I think it's been especially common these last couple of years. Uh, there has been economic uh, upheaval. There has been um, a lot of sickness um, in part because we, uh, well, we put sickness on layaway and our arrogance thinking that we could play God as a society, as mere humanity. And uh, it turns out that eventually you have to pay the piper. Uh, you can't just hide and wash your hands furiously, you know, for years and years and think that uh, all of a sudden that we're not going to ever get sick anymore. And so whether it's uh, sickness or whether it's uh, unemployment or uh, struggles just with uh, inflation and the fact that life simply costs more. Right now, consumer debt is at an all-time high. Uh, I am hopeful, uh, practically, just at a practical standpoint for the next year, uh, not because I think we're going to get the right guy in office, um, and not because I think that if we got the right guy in office that he would make changes that would actually materialize in financial benefits uh, immediately uh, next year. Um, the reason why I'm hopeful next year is because of sin, uh, sin which is common to man. Uh, once you live a certain amount of time, uh, you, just, you just realize that total depravity is a fact and uh, that people are really bad 
And so every four years, I think that there's economic hope, uh, not because of righteousness, but uh, despite any righteousness that there may be, there is hope because of uh, exceeding wickedness. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, in the same way that gas prices conveniently dropped in 2022, right before a midterm election, uh, it wasn't because righteous decisions were actually being made in office in order to fix the economy. It was because we were draining our emergency fuel, <laughs> putting us in a terrible position, uh, but so that we could temporarily have the optic of a better economy because there was an election. So every four years, uh, I would say, you know, this is uh, my, you know, I'm not, I'm not a finance uh, guru, so take it with a grain of salt. I'm a pastor, right? So I got, I got to keep my day job and remember what I'm actually good at. But, um, but I think there's some theological underpinnings here. Uh, my advice would be every four years, you'll probably have some economic opportunity. Why? Uh, because people are bad. That's, that's the theology. Total depravity uh, in our American system equals an economic opportunity about every four years. Um, so be looking for that. You know, keep your powder dry, and um, if you can, have some liquidity. Um, we do want to build wealth as Christians because we want to crush the enemies of God. And we want to actually crush them, not just uh, in a spiritual 17th dimension kind of way. Uh, when I say crush the enemies of God, especially since I added the adjective actually, I should probably give a little bit more clarity there uh, for the sake of, well, I'm probably already on an FBI watch list, but, you know, but at least so that they don't come and you know, break down the building you know, while we're inside. Um, I don't mean in a physical capacity. I'm not talking about uh, physically crushing, uh, but I am talking about in this earthly domain. Uh, I want our children to be financially better off than their atheistic counterparts. Um, I, I want to see Christian institutions built, established, increased, and thriving. I want to see leftist, neo-Marxist, God-hating institutions crumble. And to explain that a little bit, since there is no such thing as a leftist institution, because they don't build, because they are parasitic by nature. Uh, when I say I want to see those institutions crushed, what I'm saying is I want to see conservative institutions once upon a time now hijacked and taken over by leftist institutions. I want to see those either recaptured or crushed. Um, atheism will be crushed, I believe, uh, in the West uh, by the grace of God, but it'll take time. Um, it'll take time. We didn't get here overnight. We're not going to get out of the position that we're in overnight as well. Um, so all that being said, the point is 2022, 2023, the last couple of years, uh, I think were uh, high anxiety inducing years, if I could put it like that, uh, because we have been paying the piper. We have been experiencing consequences for uh, longstanding sin. And uh, those consequences for the record, uh, unfortunately, I'm not trying to give you more anxiety, but hopefully the this, this sermon will help if I do. Um, so maybe, you know, at the outset, we can get a little bit more scared and then, and then we can uh, get a little bit more peace by the time that we're done. Uh, but I, I don't think, you know, for anybody who thinks, you know, we've hit rock bottom. Um, I have bad news for you. Um, it's cute. I, I, you know, I envy you. That's, that's a really sweet disposition. Um, I remember when I was seven, you know, so. But uh, no, we have not hit rock bottom. Not even close. Uh, that's a joke. Uh, you don't get to mock the living God for 130 years and, uh, and think that this is rock bottom, high gas prices. 
Um, that, that's, I, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We haven't even begun to reap uh, what we have sown in the West, uh, not for the last three years since COVID, uh, but easily, depending how you're counting, you could easily say that we've done this for the last 65 years. Right, so that would be back to the sexual revolution, the 1960s. You could argue even sooner or longer, uh, 130 years. You can argue all the way back to the Enlightenment um, and say that we have been cruising for a bruising for a very long time. And so far, what we have received is light and temporary consequences. Um, I believe that the full consequences, if there's always the contingency because God is merciful, if we don't repent... Uh, the consequences that we will experience in the future will be far more severe than what we have experienced thus far. So all that being said, anxiety seems to be at an all-time high. Um, these last two years, just getting a sample, just a little bit of, you know, it's kind of like your, you know, your 700-day uh, free trial of communism, you know. Uh, you know and, and I plan not to renew the subscription, you know, but unfortunately, uh, there are Democrats in the world and uh, they think communism is great. And, um, and, you know, Republicans tend to just enshrine uh, the Democrats, you know, victory from 15 minutes ago. And that's what it means to be conservative. Uh, so we're in trouble. And there's going to be anxiety for Christians and we need to know how to deal with it from the word of God. Uh, we're not supposed to just survive, uh, but we should be those who are at peace. Um, there's been so many times over the course of my life where the peace comes once the problem has been solved. Uh, that's not good enough for the people of God. Uh, it's not sufficient for us to come to a place of peace once God has answered our prayers in the way that we think he should. Uh, we want to be at peace in the middle of tribulation, in the middle of challenge, of difficulty, trials, uh, not only once they've subsided, uh, but during the challenges. We want to be at peace, uh, not because we already have received the answer that we're asking for, but because we've received the ultimate answer, who is Christ himself. He is the Prince of Peace. It's his name. It's who he is. It's his character. It's his nature. Uh, we don't merely need God to give us peace. We need God to give us himself. He is our peace. There is no peace apart from him. And there is no way to not have peace except for distancing ourselves from him. If you are with Christ if you have intimacy with Christ, if you are aware and practicing awareness of his presence and immersing yourself in his word and meditating on his law day and night, you will have peace. And there are so many scriptures that are not just descriptions, but actual imperatives, moral imperatives, commands not to fear. We are commanded in Scripture again and again and again not to fear. And yet when it comes to anxiety, uh, this is one of those areas, a realm, uh, that we exhibit so much compassion, so much mercy toward our anxiety. We are merciful 
in the way that we deal with our lack of faith. Because so much of our anxiety, that is precisely where it comes from, where it stems from. So much of our worry and our fear and our anxiety is simply a lack of trusting in Christ, his nature, his person, who he is, and his promises, that which he has promised to do on our behalf. So much of our anxiety that ultimately it originates from a lack of belief, a lack of trust. And on that basis, insofar as anxiety represents a lack of trust in God, in that regard, we can rightly and biblically label anxiety as a sin. There's commandment after commandment after commandment, many coming from Christ himself. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But we also have apostolic commandments. One example that many of you are probably familiar with would be Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. It starts off with a command stated in the positive sense, rejoice in the Lord always. It's not just poetry or prose. It's not just... Uh, beautiful language or suggestion or description of what would really be nice if we could somehow pull it off. No, this is a commandment. That is to say that to not be rejoicing in the Lord at any time, because the commandment is to rejoice in the Lord always, that means to not be rejoicing in the Lord at any time is sin. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, in case you missed it, I will say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And here's the key. The Lord is at hand. I'm going to come back there here in just a moment. Verse 6 now, Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, wait, wait a second. Hold up, hold up. Joel, I'm not anxious about, you know, the bad things to be anxious about, the, the things that would require such little faith in order to get ruffled up, in order to be in a dither. That's what my mother would say. A dither, right? That's a, that's a belonging to a particular generation. I love that term, though. Um, I, I'm, I'm not in a dither about, you know, frivolous things, petty things, small things. I'm just anxious about these things. Great, fantastic. Well, let me read the command again. Do not be anxious about anything anything it is universal it's all encompassing there is nothing that you are permitted to be anxious about according to this biblical command but rather so instead of being anxious about anything or in many of our cases sadly to our shame we are anxious about everything it's like piglet you know, with a Winnie the Pooh. It's just a, a small gust of wind and you're, you're shivering and shuddering. and you know, Like you're just anxious, anxious, anxious. But do not be anxious about anything. There's no good kind. There's no permissible version. But in everything, to the contrary, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, so it is God's peace which he gives, but how does he give it? He gives himself, is what I'm going to argue this morning. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need to guard our hearts and minds from the sin of anxiety, and they will be guarded properly and thoroughly in Christ Jesus, who is the God of peace. He is the Prince of Peace. So we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus from anxiety and incessant sinful worry. We need the peace of God as our hedge of protection, as our shield, our buttress against the sin of anxiety. And how does God give his peace? He gives his son. How does he give his peace? He gives his son. He is the Prince of Peace. It is not merely the peace of the prince, but it is the prince who is all peace. He embodies peace. He is peace personified. And if you want peace and freedom from anxiety, you must have Christ. You must have Christ. You must possess Christ and be possessed by Christ. For he is the Prince of Peace who guards our hearts and minds from anxiety. Now, there is a bit of a formula, or at least a formulaic expression that we could extract from this particular text in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but instead, to the contrary, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So you could say that one of the methods of combating anxiety is prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving. And if we were to define those in very simple terms, prayer would be future-oriented. Prayer, in this particular case, supplications, that's requests, it's going to the Lord with certain requests, making those requests known to him for things that you need or will need in the future. It's for God, it's a request for God to take future action on your behalf. So the prayer portion of this formula in combating anxiety would be to ask God, petition God with supplications, with requests for him to meet in the future at some point, preferably, you know, in the next 15 seconds, but, you know, relatively soon, but still technically in a future sense that God would grant your request, that God would give to you what it is that you are asking. So in the prayer portion, it's future oriented. God, I have this present need. Would you meet this need in the future? But it's not only prayer and supplication. But we are to offer prayers, a petition, and make supplications with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is ordinarily past-oriented. So when you think of thanksgiving, we are ordinarily thanking God for those things which he has already supplied. The things that he has already provided. And the two of these do work hand in glove. Because part of the source of building our faith and our eager, humble, not presumptuous, not arrogant, but a humble and eager expectation for God to meet present needs in the future is by reflecting on the ways in which he has met our needs in the past. And if we're going to reflect and remember all the ways which God has provided and answered our prayers in the past, well, we might as well thank him while we're at it. 
that we would think he came through in this instance and this one and this one and this one and this one, and that we would be remembering the past faithfulness of God in a spirit of thanksgiving, with a spirit of gratitude. So thanksgiving and gratitude for the past, and then faith and trust in our petitions and requests, our prayers and supplications for the future. Thankfulness for past grace, and then prayers for future, present and future grace. And in doing this, this is one of the ways that we combat against worry and sinful anxiety. However, at a personal level, this is one of the problems that I often run into when I'm employing this particular formula as a bulwark against anxiety. When I'm praying, praying quickly begins to turn to problem solving. And praying and problem solving are not synonymous. Synonymous. And then when it comes to thanksgiving and seeking to remind myself of God's past faithfulness, there's usually a temptation in my mind to think that he's been faithful thus far, but that he will be faithful no longer. And that in fact, his faithfulness has been to set me up so that the disappointment I'm now experiencing would hurt exponentially more. My God has only been faithful. He's only provided for me so far in life so that, um, you know, if, if I was just to die off when I was 14, it just wouldn't have been tragic enough. But now as a husband and father at the ripe age of 37, this is what God's been working towards for the last 37 years. He's just been building this crescendo so that he can crush me optimally. Um, now, that's a terrible view of God. But there are times in our thanksgiving where it doesn't bolster our faith in God's future faithfulness, but it actually just confirms a demonic view, and it is demonic, of, of God actually, that he's been orchestrating all things this whole time against us in order to cultivate our greatest degree of disappointment. That God, ultimately, his disposition towards us is a position of holding out on us. And any time that he hasn't held out on us, it was only to, to position us in a more hopeful, in a more hopeful posture so that when he held out on us eventually in the future, it would crush us more severely. That's a demonic way of thinking. That's not the character, the nature of God, but it's something that we are tempted to believe in moments of anxiety and worry. We doubt the future faithfulness of God and we seek to explain away the past faithfulness of God as him just positioning us to disappoint us in a greater capacity later on. So, one of the ways that we hedge against anxiety is prayer and thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving. But our thanksgiving is only helpful as we seek to remember past faithfulness so long as we also remember the character and nature of God, that he is immutable. Behold, I am the Lord, I changeth not, so that you, the sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he changes not. Uh, our thankfulness towards God's past faithfulness is only helpful insofar as we believe that he is a steadfast covenant-keeping God and that his faithfulness in the past is an indicator of his continued commitment and faithfulness towards us in the future. 
that we could say, as David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That David eventually arrived at a certain point where he recognized that the covenant, steadfast faithfulness of God, this has said, this blessedness of God, his goodness, his faithfulness, had been so substantial that there could be no conclusion. There could be no way of interpreting God's past faithfulness because it was so substantial. There's no way of understanding it or interpreting it, but that God must have an eternal commitment to me as his child. That's the point that David eventually reached. He reached the point of recognizing that God's faithfulness in the past was a guarantee of his faithfulness that would continue into eternity. And this is one of the things that we find, again, in apostolic writings in the New Testament as it pertains to God's faithfulness to himself, not only to us, but to himself. Do you remember the text that says that when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny us? No, for he cannot deny himself. And elsewhere, the scripture continues and talks about, in terms of himself, that the third member of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit of God, dwells within us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do you not know that you were bought with a price? Therefore, honor God with your body. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. That, that if you are in Christ, if you're a new creation, if you've been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And again, furthermore, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit dwells within us as a deposit, as a guarantee of that which is to come. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to assure us of our adoption, that God indeed is our covenant, steadfast, faithful father that he loves us and that he'll never leave us or forsake us that christ has not abandoned us or left us as orphans but he promises all his disciples including you and i as future disciples that he will be with us even to the end of the age and he is that the spirit of the resurrected christ although the god man in a literal sense is seated at the right hand of the father almighty the Spirit, though, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ is in us through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And the Holy Spirit, one of his chief ministries is to exude the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. Which means, to make that abundantly simple, it means that it is technically a biblically, theologically accurate statement to say Jesus is in my heart. Right, that's basically the gist of it. Uh, the five-year-old said, Jesus is in my heart. Well, if the five-year-old is regenerate, then, you know, make him a theologian because they nailed it. He is, yep, Jesus is in your heart. Um, the spirit of the risen Christ is present within you by virtue of the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So God has given you, the point is, himself, the Prince of Peace, his Holy Spirit, of which one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Peace. And God has given you himself and he has promised to remain faithful not only to you, but he cannot deny himself. And he has given you himself 
in the indwelling ministry of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who gives peace and exudes the, the spirit of the risen Christ, who is the prince of peace. And therefore, we can trust that God will never leave us or forsake us. His past kindness has not been positioning us for future greater disappointment. His past kindness should be interpreted as David interpreted it. God has been kind and faithful thus far. Therefore, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Not only has God uh, been faithful to me thus far, but he has been so faithful that the only way that I could possibly interpret this is his steadfast, eternal commitment to me and himself forever. That if God was going to leave me, there were optimal moments already where he could have done so. If God was setting me up for this great moment of rejection and humiliation, he could have already done so. That God is with me today because he will be with me tomorrow. That he'll never leave me or forsake me. That he is with me always, even to the end of the age. And so we must remind ourselves in our prayers and supplication, in our thanksgiving, that God's past faithfulness is indicative of his future commitment to remain faithful. Now, one thing about prayer, I'll say this briefly. One practical tip for prayer, especially in moments of anxiety, prayers of petition and request, making those requests known to God. There is an exceeding uh, advantage in making short prayers. I would encourage you to have more prayers and shorter prayers rather than few prayers but long prayers. I think that that's just one example of how many Christians have gotten prayer wrong. I have found they're one of the most helpful things that I can do, even in leading my family, not just privately and personally as an individual Christian, but as a head of a household with wife and children. Uh, one of the most helpful things that I can do is just to be praying constantly short prayers, but the same prayers again and again and again. So my family has been sick the last couple of weeks and by God's grace, we're healed. We're better. But for two weeks, um, easily, there were out loud, so it's out loud, it's not just, you know, in my head, not just at the level of thought, but, but actually voicing petitions to God, and easily 10 to 20 a day. Uh, and, and that's not to say, you know, like, you know, like I'm not try, trying to brag. These are very short prayers. These are easy petitions to offer. Um, but that's, that's biblical. Um, Think of it like this. So Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, you know, let your words, don't be like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious rulers, the scribes, thinking that their prayers will be heard because of their many words. But rather, when you pray, close yourself in your closet in a secret place, right? So you're not praying for the glory of men, 
for men to praise you, but rather you're praying to your father who is in secret. So that's one element of prayer that you're not doing it for the praise of men, but rather you're, you're actually praying to God. And then secondly, he says, and let your words be few. Your father, he already knows what you need before you even go to him. So that, that gives us the short element of prayer, short prayers. But now what about the, the, the repetitive element of prayer? Well, that would also be another teaching of Christ where we have the parable of the persistent widow. And in this parable, she goes to an unrighteous judge and she goes to this man over and over and over and over again to where eventually the judge, he himself admits, he says, although I am an unjust and unrighteous judge, since this woman, because she is so persistent and keeps bugging me, I will grant to her her request simply so she'll leave me alone. And it's an argument from the lesser to the greater that Jesus is making. He's saying, even if God, even if your demonic view at times, because of temptation, because of lack of belief, your demonic view of God, even if that was accurate, and it's not, but even if your view of God was accurate, that he's out to get me, he doesn't really love me, right? He adopted all these other people into his family, but I'm just, you know, I'm just the, the redheaded spiritual stepchild, you know, uh, of God. And, and I'm not, I don't have full membership in his covenant community, right? Everybody sits at the table and then I sit kind of over here in the corner. I'm, kind, I'm, a, I'm a halfway house Christian that's kind of accepted, but not really. Even if that were your view of God, which would be wrong and demonic, that is not who he is. But even if that were your view of God, Jesus, the parable that he's telling is saying, even based off of that view, you still stand a great likelihood of, of your request and petitions being answered if you just rack up some reps. Just put in prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer. Because even an unrighteous judge who is not who God is, but even if he were, if God were an unrighteous judge, just to get you to be quiet, he would answer your prayers. Just to get you to be quiet. So two elements of praying. One, short. Two, many. So rather than few long prayers, many short prayers. And here's one of the things, practically speaking, that many short prayers help with. When your prayers are many and short, it helps to ensure that you're actually praying and not merely problem solving. Very quickly, prayer can subtly transition to thinking. Prayer can become thought in an instant. And it's no longer prayer. So that's another practical tip that I would offer. When you pray, I encourage you to pray out loud. And that's not because you technically, in a technical sense, can't pray under your breath. That you can't pray with your mind. Because you can. But I've found that in terms of just my own finitude, my own propensity towards giving in to temptation, if I don't speak the prayer out loud, if I just think in conversation in the realm of thought to God, it usually quickly transitions from talking to God in my thoughts to just thinking that I began just thinking. And I'm no longer actually making my petitions to God, requesting what I need, but I'm actually taking it into my own hands and trying to solve my own problems. All underneath the banner of prayer, I'm calling it prayer, 
But, you know, you finish this three-hour, glorious, pious, you know, quiet time. You feel really good about it. But if you were to boil it down, two hours and 55 minutes of it was actually you just strategically thinking how you're going to fix your financial problem. You know, and you're calling it time with God. Uh, but again, you're problem solving, not praying. So all that being said, short, out loud, many. Short, out loud, many when it comes to our petitions. And then when it comes to Thanksgiving, we're making requests for future grace while remembering past grace. And remembering the past graces of God, his provision and protection, the things that he has supplied that we needed in the past, and trusting that this is his character. That it's not a setup for future disappointment and rejection, but rather God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. His uh, past faithfulness is indicative of future faithfulness. All right. Last thing that we need to get to. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, we've already gotten there a little bit, um, but I've written in your notes this, a, a series of questions. So we, we don't just need a principle, and we don't just need a formula. What we need is Christ. We don't just need the peace of Christ, but we need Christ who is our peace. We don't just need the peace of God, but we need the God of peace. We need the Prince of Peace in order to combat the anxiety of our hearts. But here's the question, what happens when we get him? So if we need God, not just peace coming from God, but we need the presence of God, God himself, who is our peace, how does that fix anxiety? What will this person, namely God, actually do when he's with us? Will he give us the money that we need? Will he thwart the plans of the person who's trying to harm us? Will he spare our children from all accidents and disease? We know that at least occasionally the answer to these questions is no. So then what difference does God's presence actually make when he offers no promises to wield his power in the ways which we would like? Those are the final questions that I'll attempt to answer. From Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34 which says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Or as Charles Spurgeon would say, Anxiety does not solve, uh, uh, does not rid today, does not rid tomorrow of its problems, but merely today of its peace. Are you not more valuable than the birds? Which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, 
Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, when it comes to anxiety, we don't need merely the peace of God. We need the God of peace, the Prince of Peace. We need Christ himself. And if we get him, what will he give us? Well, according to this text, what he'll give us is precisely what we need when we need it. Precisely what we need, exactly when we need it. We will always be anxious. Get this into your, your marrow, your bones. We will always be anxious when we forecast the future because we are making our predictions based on the grace which we have been given today. What we don't factor into our predictions, the equation for the future, is that we will receive fresh grace tomorrow. In other words, the opposite of anxiety is not actually peace, but hope. Anxiety predicts that fresh grace will not come, but hope predicts that it will. The antidote to anxiety is hope, and peace is a byproduct of that hope. That what we're ultimately doing when we're combating anxiety is we are betting against our own future detriment. We're saying, I know how this could work out bad, but I believe that it'll be for my good. And we're basing this not just off of hopeful wishing, what we want to be true. We're basing this off of the character and nature of God and what he promised would be true. Romans chapter 8 says that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. There is not one thing in your life that is not ultimately being orchestrated, not merely salvaged. And there is a difference. God is not merely looking. Life is not the ultimate authority. So many Christians think this. I'm just going to call it what it is. Christians think that life is the authority and that God is the greatest being under the authority of life that can work life in positive ways. But the ultimate authority is not God, but rather life. That's what many evangelical Christians believe. So they think life gives you lemons, but God can make lemonade. Mm -mm. No, if you have lemons in life, it's because God gave you lemons, and he gave you lemons because lemons are going to be made eventually somehow in some way into lemonade because God wanted lemonade because it's delicious. That's, that's the theology. If it, Life doesn't give you anything. Life is not a deity. Life is not a person. Life is not sovereign. Life is not authoritative. Life is not God. God is God. And he doesn't merely salvage what life gives us. When, when Romans 8 says that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, the word works there actually means ordains. He orchestrates. He designs. He intends. He plans all things for our good. 
So he's not just taking bad things and, and putting a, a positive spin on it. No, he, he's sending us things, both good and bad, but all for good and holy purposes. So Matthew 6, what, what it tells us to answer that proverbial question of, okay, we need the God of peace, fine, sure. But once we get him, once he's here, what will he do? What will he do? And the answer is, what he'll do is what he's always done and what he'll always do, which is give you precisely what you need, exactly when you need it for your ultimate and eternal good. Period. That's all he does. That's all he does. He is not cruel. And he is not stingy. And he is not against you. He is for you. If he freely gave you his own son, the only commodity that would ever cost him anything, how much more then will he not freely give you all things? If God was going to withhold one thing from you, it would have been Jesus. And yet he freely gave his son to bleed out and die as a lamb that was slaughtered so that you might inherit eternal bliss and glory and reconciliation with God as your father. If there was anything to hold back, Jesus would have been it. If there was any time to say no to spoiled children 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem would have been the time. But he didn't. He gave to you the Prince of Peace. Everything else that you need in life is easy for God. It cost him nothing. It is not a stress or an inconvenience. It's not an expense. It's nothing. The only thing that was ever, ever costly was for Jesus, the Son of God, to bleed out and die. And he did not withhold Christ. So he cannot be withholding anything else. If there's anything that he appears seemingly is holding back, it can only be because that thing that you think would be for your good would actually do you harm. And this other thing, which you would prefer not to have, is actually exactly what you need. God gives you what you need. He gives it when you need it. And the last element that I'll bake into this equation here is this. He also gives you what you need, when you need it, and he gives it the, the right manner, method. He gives us what we need, how we need it. As an example, to, to flesh out that idea. Um, if you want to be sanctified, work for commission. Right? Those of you... you you weenies getting paid every two weeks. You don't know Jesus. Right? You want to know Jesus, right? Work for commission. Right? That's, 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 that's what you got to do, you know? Or own your own business. It's the same thing. You own your own business, and it's like, that guy's going to work. And that guy's going to work, and he's going to be working in his business. He's also going to be working on his knees, right? That guy, he, this whole sermon has just been redundant for him. He didn't need this sermon. He's like, oh, lots, you, 20 prayers in a day? That's cute, pastor. You know, my family, like, we're praying 200 times a day. God, please, money, please, please, 
please let someone buy something. Let him buy something, please, God. That's, you know, that's a guy who owns his own business. That's a commission guy. You know, that's somebody in sales. You get it. Everybody else, you guys, you know, you'll get sanctified in heaven. But in the meantime, you, you are inferior. Um, you just need to know that, right? So if you're looking for someone to mentor you, go find that guy who works for commission. Say, brother, I'm going to follow you as you follow Christ. Um, but, I, but I'm not going to follow you in your career choice. Uh, but I, but, but spirit, spiritually speaking, I'll follow you in that regard. Um, here's the point. In terms of God giving you what you need, when you need it, but also the how factor. Maybe God is going to give you $150,000 this is not a prosperity gospel thing. Hear me out. Hear me out. Maybe he's going to give you $150,000 in a two-year period. And maybe that's exactly what your family needs. And maybe he's going to give it to you after one year and 355 days. Maybe that's how he's going to give you what you need. Instead of giving you $6,000 every month. He's going to give it all in one lump sum as you've been biting your nails for one year, 365 days. Why? Why would he do that? Because he's going to give you both provision and perseverance and character and form you into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Because he's actually committed to giving you two things. Temporal needs being met but also eternal sanctification being provided as well. He's doing it differently than the way you would do it. Do you know why though? Here's the key. This is, this is the craziest part about it. God is answering your prayers differently than you would answer them. You know why? Because he's better than you. And I don't just mean better like infinitely more wise or more powerful than you. No, I mean he's kinder than you. He's more loving than you. He cares about you more than you care about you. You think you love your kids? No, not compared to him. He's good. He's good. He's kind. He's generous. And he's doing a million things simultaneously, ordaining and working and orchestrating all for your, not just two-year-long financial good, but eternity good. God is thinking about your happiness 10,000 eons from now and doing things today with that end in mind. That's how kind he is. That's how good he is. So what's the hedge against anxiety? It's not merely the peace of God. It is the God of peace. It is the Prince of peace. It's Jesus Christ. It's his presence. But what does Jesus give us that thwarts and, and staves off anxiety? Well, he gives us not actually peace, not, not initially. He gives us hope. And peace becomes the byproduct of that hope. And what is the hope? The hope is that by having him, we therefore will also have everything else that we need when we need it and how we need it. 
Because that's exactly what he promised us. If we have him, we have the guarantee of the fulfillment of his promises. And his promises are to give us what we need, when we need it, how we need it. So that our material and temporal physical needs are met for us, our wife, our children, and our spiritual needs for the utmost joy and peace and gladness 10,000 eons from now, those needs are being met as well. Because he's better than you. He's kinder than you. He's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the peace that you provide by giving us yourself. That you overcome our anxiety by providing for us not merely a principle, but a person. More particularly, you have provided for us 2,000 years ago the second eternal person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, wrapped in flesh, the Word become flesh to dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We have been given not merely peace, but we have been given the Prince of Peace. And he is present with us, And he promises to provide what we need, when we need it, and how we need it. So that our temporal and earthly needs are met, but also our greatest need is met. Our spiritual and eternal need to be formed more into the image of your son. And so all we need at this point is to believe it. And as a centurion soldier once said, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. A part of me believes and trusts your word and your promises, but there is a part of my heart that is unbelieving, that is steeped in unbelief, and it continually is producing worry and anxiety and fear. Help me, God. So, Lord, the first thing that we do in eliciting your help is we name our sin for what it is. That every arena of our heart that does not trust you is, in fact, sin. And Lord, we promise by the power that your spirit provides, and by your grace and your strength, to not deal mercifully with our sin. But instead, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to deal with our sin of distrust and unbelief ruthlessly that we would mortify our sin, wage war against our sin, that we would take no prisoners when it comes to our sin, but rather we would round it up, subdue it, and put it to death by grace, that unbelief would be ruthlessly hunted down in the realm of each of our hearts and put to death by the sword of the Spirit and your promises in your word that hope would rise and as a byproduct of hope, we would be people at peace. We pray this for Christ's sake. In his name, amen.